0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class. This is session number three, and my name is Corey Olson, and I am uh, glad to be with you here today. Uh, it's fun to see. I was looking through uh, the attendee list today, and I saw a couple people who whom I already saw earlier today <clears throat> uh, at... Uh, the event we had late this afternoon uh with uh our interview with dr higgins which was uh, which was really fun um so welcome uh let me start as i usually do with a couple announcements um just to remind you this and this is the last time i'll be reminding you of this because we are mere days away from it um that is Midmoot, our uh, conference in Baltimore, our regional conference. That's going to be this coming Saturday, October third, uh, starting at ten a.m. Um, so it's not too late to sign up. We have now about seventy people planning to come, uh, so it should be great. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so I, uh, I'll be, I'll be getting on a plane pretty soon, head back down, uh, back, back down south towards uh, uh, my old, uh, my old region. Uh, where that I moved away from relatively recently. Um, So uh, anyway, I'm really looking forward to getting to see everybody down there. And I uh, hope you can come you can come join us there. Um, In addition, of course, we also are in the middle of our fundraising campaign as we talked about uh, as we talked about last week. Um, things have been off to a really exciting start. I need to update, uh, our webpage. We've had, uh, uh, several very generous pledges since then. Um, we now have raised over $7,000 in our first week, which has been really wonderful. Um, and, uh, so we're, we're about a third of the way, a little bit more than a third of the way to our, uh, first goal already. Um. Which I'm very excited about. So, thanks to everybody who has uh, donated already. Um, I hope that uh, uh, that you guys will consider giving to support. Um, the programs that we do, uh, of course, as we've been doing for the last two years, um, our, you know, involvement in the voting process of the Mythgard Academy, if you want to say in which books we do next, um, uh, you know, that uh, uh, is, uh, is, is done by our, by our donors, by our supporters. Um, so I certainly hope that you will be able to, uh, to be involved in that way. Um, so again just uh, thanks everybody for uh, your generosity so far um, we have, we just had as I mentioned, we just had one uh, uh, one special event earlier today um, which uh, if you missed that uh, a recording of it will be uh, posted soon uh, so you'll still be able to see that um, we have another next week before our next class um, we're going to have another event on Tuesday evening um, that event will feature the Really fun new uh, Lord of the Rings Online program that uh, we've begun this past year, um, and I strongly, I strongly encourage, especially, and of course, this will be it should be a really fun event for uh, for LOTRO players, but especially if you've never seen the Lord of the Rings Online before, um, I think that you'll really enjoy the session that I'm going to do on Tuesday night because what I'm going to do is I'm going to go around to several major, really sort of prominent places. Uh, in Middle-earth, um, you know, places which have either very memorable or, uh, or you know, sort of very prominent places in the books, and look at what Lotro does with those. I find the Lord of the Rings online a, 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 a continually engaging uh, and consistently fascinating adaptation of Tolkien's work, um, and I have found that, you know, although I don't always agree with absolutely every decision they make, I find them always thoughtful uh, and always interesting to think about so i'm really looking forward to going through i'm going to be my my sort of main character my guardian named wigand is going to be bouncing around uh from one site in middle earth to another uh as we explore everything from bag end to the shipwreck uh where arvedui lost the uh uh lost the uh, the the palantir up in the, in the in the in the ice in the north um, so uh, anyway it should be it, it should be a lot of fun you don 't of course have to be in the game to be able to play i 'm going to be streaming that, so you just be have to uh, uh, connect through um, through twitch, which is the the name of the, the the service that we the streaming service that we use so you just have to you go to this web page and you'll be able to watch uh, and listen to that live so I hope you 'll be able to join me that 's next Tuesday at nine thirty p m this same time on Tuesday uh, next um, next week. Yeah, uh Patrick Summers is asking if uh Wigand has Griffiths' love of architecture. Uh yes. Yes, yes, he pretty much does. Uh so um so that's good. Um I, I I there will probably be a certain amount of architectural discussion that will be going on there. Um let me just check I'm seeing uh looks like my uh picture has for some reason frozen up here. I just want to make sure that you guys can hear me okay um uh yeah yeah truly Wigand and Griffith are pretty much uh cut from the same from the same cloth here so um good good i'm g- oh, good i'm glad you guys are both seeing and hearing me i was i was not seeing myself there for a second so good fine excellent all right uh well let's talk about uh jonathan strange and mr norrell um tonight we're gonna i'm gonna we're gonna try to get through part one we'll see how uh, close we get to that Uh, and in particular i really want to um, focus on the depiction of fairy. We only spent a little time um, with the uh, the gentleman with the thistledown hair, whose name I shall not repeat in full very often. Um, we didn't spend all that long with the fairy last time, and I want to look at the fairy a little bit more closely. And of course, this is the time in this last portion of part one, when that fairy magic is beginning to encroach more and more directly um, on England. Um, and beginning to interact. And again, we're going to be coming back to that question that I've been asking. What exactly is English magic and what makes it English magic? So, um, I want to begin with Lady Pole. And in particular, this uh, first passage is taken from last week's reading, um, but it's a description of Lady Pole right after she is resurrected, right after she is returned to life. Because I find the depiction of Lady Pole um, to be uh, really important, I think. So, okay, uh, this is when they're con- naturally concerned, right? She's just been dead, um, and she's only very recently been resurrected, and so they're all assuming that she should still be on bed rest, right? I don't know exactly what the normal prescription is for recently resurrected people, but they're, you know, they're definitely uh, winging it and kind of assuming that probably bed rest seems like a sensible thing, um, and she will have none of it right yeah, exactly christian how is lady pole that is the question we're, we're going to address here first oh said she i've never felt better in my life i feel very strong and well thank you i have been out already this morning i do not often walk i rarely feel equal to exercise but this morning i felt as if the house were a prison i longed to be outside sir walter looked very concerned was that wise he turned to Mrs. Wintertown. Was that well done? He's not exactly rebuking his mother-in-law here, but it's pretty close. Right? How dare you let her leave the house? And just go walking off. Clearly, she's going to catch her death or something. Um, now, as always, I'd like you to be making observations as we go through, and here, specifically, I would like you to focus on what do we learn about fairies and fairy magic? Because remember, though Mr. Norrell, of course, gets the credit, it is not Mr. Norrell who raised Lady Pole from the dead. Um, this is why, of course, he was so keen to keep that quiet and not to let Drawlight and Lascelles stay in the room when he resurrected Lady Pole, because it was not, in fact, his spell. His spell merely summoned the fairy, and the fairy... Did the resurrecting? So, um, so, so again, here we're making observations not about English magic exactly, certainly not about Mister Norrell's magic. We're making observations about fairies and fairy magic. So, what do we notice about that? What does this passage emphasize um, about that? So that's what I want you to focus your observations on as we, as we go through. Mrs. Wintertown opened her mouth to protest, but her daughter only laughed and exclaimed, Oh, mamma knew nothing of it, I assure you. I went out while she was asleep in her room. Barnard went with me, and I walked round Brunswick Square twenty times. Twenty! Is that not the most ridiculous thing you ever heard? But I was possessed of such a desire to walk. Indeed, I would have run, I think, if it were at all possible. But in London, you know, she laughed again. I wanted to go further, but Barnard would not let me. Barnard was in such a gri- was in a great flutter and worry, lest I should faint away in the road. She would not let me go out of sight of the house. They stared at her. It was, apart from anything else, probably the longest speech Sir Walter had ever heard her utter. She was sitting very straight, with a bright eye and a blooming complexion, the very picture of health and beauty. She spoke so rapidly and with such expression. She looked so cheerful and was so exceedingly animated. It was as if Mr. Norrell had not only restored her to life, but twice or thrice the amount of life she had had before. Okay, what do we what do we get? This is our first sort of direct evidence of the effect of fairy magic, right? Um, good, yeah, John, of course, we see uh, her prior illness completely gone, right? So uh, that little bout of death seemed to have been just a thing, right? That is to say, obviously... Um, the very first initial observation that we should indeed make is to recall, this is not just a woman who needed restoring to life, right? Um, okay, perhaps it seems a little bit odd to say, boy, death was only the beginning of her problems, right? But, um, but you know, it's a kind of thing. Remember how tricky fairies are, right? This comes up uh, in this passage. You've got to be careful when you how you word a... Uh, request that you make to a fairy, because they are very likely to twist your words. Um, So, notice, for instance, there, Mr. Norrell has left out that loophole, right, John, which would have been an easy loophole uh, for the fairy to try to take advantage of. That is, of course, she was killed by her disease, which, though it wasn't said, was probably consumption. Um, uh, That is, to say, probably tuberculosis i 'm just guessing, but you know when beautiful young ladies languish and fade out while coughing weakly on a sofa in an eighteenth century novel i 'm going with con- with uh, with uh, consumption um, unless i 'm told otherwise um, so anyway um, she 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 had so basically he could have raised her back to life w- with her still being consumptive right and then she could have died again soon afterwards that that 's you know, uh, well, you know, if somebody gets stabbed and you say, please resurrect this person, you might imply that you want them healed as well, but it doesn't say that, right? So, you know, a fairy who's trying to get out of the bargain, or tra- trying to cheat you on the bargain, could raise the person back to life and they immediately collapse over dead again. So, so John, you're right to point out that, you know, there's uh, the very first baseline thing that we see. The fairy has certainly not done that. He has had no interest in in cheating Mr. Norrell in that way. That itself, I do think, points to something, right? This is not a question of the fairy simply trying to do anything that he can to get out of doing what Mr. Norrell asks or anything like that. Um, He has other plans. Clearly, other plans, right? Um, And, uh, yeah, she is very much alive. Neil Ottenstein says, as if she was imbued with magic. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, I, Nancy, that's a great observation. Nancy Fosberg points out that she she can't stand to be inside, that that seems significant, and I agree. The, the fairy magic seems to draw her outside. Um, on the one hand, we can read that simply as the overflow of her energy and her spirits, right? That she can't be still. She has to go out and move. But, but Nancy, I agree with you. I think the the language in particular that Lady Pole uses there, um, it's not just, oh, I really wanted to walk. She says that, but she goes on further uh, to say that the house felt like a prison, right? Being shut up indoors um, was too much for her. Um, can you know? Can we conclude from that that you know fairy magic is an outdoors kind of magic, not by itself, but it certainly does seem does seem suggestive. Um, Claudia, very good point. Claudia, Ellie says that uh, she, the the reference to her blooming complexion, a bit like the blooming of spring and a new life, absolutely. And and that language in particular, those descriptions of her complexion, that is a a that's a very typical language for an eighteenth, nineteenth century novel describing not only a beautiful woman, but a beautiful, quite young woman, which of course she is. Um but that is the the full bloom bloom was a was a favorite word. Um uh those again, those of you who are Jane Austen fans might remember that uh those uh those those terrible lines at the beginning of Persuasion that uh um you know that that her bloom had faded, right? Because she's not she's not quite so young anymore. She's in her late twenties for crying out loud. Um but uh, anyway, so, but but nevertheless, the, coming back to that description, it does really emphasize, and I agree, Claudia, in this context, uh, it does evoke that idea of spring and the, the beginning of life. Again, not just the restoration of life, right? Not just, okay, we'll go back where we were. It's uh, a dramatic reversal of where things were. It's not just death and the restoration of life, but death and the is like the beginning um, of new life. Um yeah good James uh, Libak says it's like the gentle- like the gentleman himself she seems somewhat manic yes i agree uh the 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 tone of her speech that she her speaking rapidly um as she does she is kind of rambling on, not rambling that's not the right word chattering um uh the way that the 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 fairy gentleman uh so often does um yeah Good. Good. Yeah. So K. Uh, K. Ben Abraham points out how fairy magic has granted her both that increase of vitality and also of restlessness, and that those two things both seem like an important, uh, unimportant, uh, uh, both important elements of her uh, of her condition. Yeah. Good. Good. Very good. Yeah, Tom Hillman points out that it encourages her to behave in ways that other humans, not under its influence, think improper. Yes, we do see her not only defying the expectations of others, right? They expect her to be weak and sickly, or at least, you know, tired, maybe ne- needing to, you know, recruit herself from her recent mortality. Um, but it's not just that she is more active than they expect, but she's almost not quite, but almost deviant, actually. Right? You know, Tom kind of she doesn't quite if she had just ditched Barnard, you know, if she just ditched her maid and gone off um on her own, that would have been an even clearer step, but she she's at least tempted to do that. Um and at the very least she has left without informing her mother um without even waking you know, before her mother's even awake, um and is uh is is Acting very independently, certainly I, I, so I agree time we get a kind of a glimpse of that um, that kind of that kind of independence um, yeah yeah good Nancy yes, she is rambling uh, in the sense of walking though yes you're you're absolutely right um, yeah good um good and Nick, Nick uh, Maronzo points out that she behaves in a manner that's not expected even by herself even from her own perspective, but she herself is. Commenting on it, and the, the 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 moment Nick that strikes me most right there is is that not the most ridiculous thing you ever heard right twenty times around the square right she's laughing at herself and those that I think is a is a is a really cool moment right it shows her own surprise right she's like well, I, don't, I don't even I don't understand right but uh, and she's la- but but she's laughing at herself right she has high spirits it's not just high energy but this, this sort of um, um uh these these and, and uh in in the time we would have called it um we would have called it high animal spirits uh that she that she has both the energy and the playfulness um and that you know and and again she has that sort of pers- enough perspective to laugh at herself as well so this seems great Right, I mean, two thumbs up for fairy magic so far, I mean boy there's 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 resurrection and then there's resurrection, right i mean this is this is resurrection with top spin here. This is fantastic, it's wonderful. Um, let's look a little bit more at her description because, of course, we get a lot about her and how wonderful she is um and we were looking we we're focusing in the last passage on the effects upon her of the magic, right? How she has changed what her sort of symptoms are in the immediate aftermath of the magic. This is a little bit more about herself, personal, about who she is. Which, of course, we didn't even know. Sir Walter Pohl didn't know, right? I mean, she was the um, sort of vaguely pretty, but weak and wasted and coughing rich girl on the sofa right that's he didn't really know her he had pity on her and he needed her money that's that was the extent of his relationship with her and now he finds that he's married to this woman like every other young lady of 19 lady pole was wild for dancing she would dance every dance at a ball without once without ever once losing her breath. "'and was dismayed that everyone went away so soon. "'It is ridiculous to call such a half-hearted affair a ball,' she told Sir Walter. "'We have had scarcely three hours dancing.' "'And she marveled, too, at the frailty of the other dancers. "'Poor things. I pity them.' "'Her health was drunk by the army, the navy, and the church. "'Sir Walter Pole was regularly named the most fortunate man in the kingdom, "'and Sir Walter himself was quite of the same opinion.' Miss Wintertown, poor, pale, sick Miss Wintertown, had excited his compassion, but Lady Pole, in, const- in a constant glow of extraordinary good health and happy spirits, was the object of his admiration. When she accidentally knocked the Secretary of War to the ground, he thought it was the best joke in the world, and spoke of it to everyone he met. He privately confided to Lady Winsell, his particular friend, that her ladyship was exactly the wife to suit him, so clever, so lively, so everything he could have wished for. He was particularly struck by her independent opinions, and we have of course uh, then it goes on to he 's expanding on on her political views, right how she thought that the uh, the ministers were completely wrong to try to uh, to ally themselves with Sweden and instead they should be uh, moving into the peninsula uh, yeah, which of which is exactly what the ministers we're told have decided not to do but which, of course, we will discover later on. They are, in fact, going to shift to do, and I don't know if they shifted their policy because of Lady Pole's recommendation or not. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, you know, so... so what do we learn about Lady Pole here? See, it's there are a couple things, right? On the one hand, her love of dancing and her remarkable stamina both seem to be effects of the fairy magic. Um, now, I mean, as our narrator tells us, uh, uh, every young lady of 19 loves dancing, right? So her delight in balls, her being sorry that they're over so soon, her, you know, uh, energy for dancing, if you forget the fact that she was this weekly and consumptive thing, if you, if you can forget that, that's not completely uh, out of the ordinary um but again from the previous passage we know that this certainly seems to be correlated with the fairy magic but um uh but the fact that she, her brains i don't think we do necessarily i mean i suppose we might but i don't think that we're we're meant to attribute her intelligence to the fairy magic, I think. You know, she just she was too weak and sickly ever to engage in conversation. Remember, uh, Sir Walter Pole had never heard her make a speech as long as the the one that we read in the previous passage ever before. So he'd never had a conversation with her ever. Um. Now, of course, he does, and he finds that she is not only beautiful and energetic uh, and funny. But she's brilliant. She's really smart and has independent opinions. That's what he's particularly proud of. Right? Um, That is, she is not only... The emphasis I would say there, it goes beyond the social norm. That is, a lady was... Uh, i i thinking of uh and again uh austin fans will uh uh will certainly associate much with this word. It's not just about the accomplishments of a young lady, right? All refined young ladies were meant to speak multiple languages and be able to uh discourse on great books. But there's a big difference between being able to perform well in conversation at parties, right? Being able to hold your own in cultured conversation and having independent opinions, right? Um, not only thinking about serious subjects like politics, but having, you know, being willing to say to your husband, who is one of the ministers for crying out loud. Oh no! The, you know the ministers are completely wrong to act in the way they are, and this is why. Right? That's not the. That's not part of the normal accomplishments of uh, you know of uh, of a, of a genteel young lady. Um, so Sir Walter Pole is right to isolate this as a remarkable thing about her. And again, I would suggest that this shows us not just the effect of the fairy magic, but rather her own innate. Gifts she was beautiful before she was raised from the dead she was presumably though she never we never got a chance to see it nobody ever really got a chance to see it presumably brilliant before she was dead as well um, but now all of those things are um, are, are are sort of uh, 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 coming out and kay you're right um, Sir Walter Pohl is refreshingly opposite uh, it, refreshingly different from many 19th and, and uh, 18th century uh, um, men um, in his enthusiasm for his wife's brains um, uh, Kay is thinking of Mr. Casabon from Middlemarch, who is certainly a good example. Kay I mean, it immediately makes me think of Squire Western uh, in Tom Jones by Henry Fielding uh, who whose sister is also an intelligent, she's an older spinster lady, but um, but she uh she expresses her opinions very strongly on politics and he doesn't agree with her politics, but more importantly, he does not believe that women have any business having any opinions about politics whatsoever. Um and is appalled to hear his sister you know gets angry not just at her political opinions, but the fact that she has them. That is supposed to be a man's thing. And um but 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 you're right. Sir Walter Pole does not think that way at all. Though, Tom Hillman makes a really interesting point. He, she, uh, Tom says, it's odd that a man in the Regency should have a woman as a particular friend, isn't it though? And Tom, I, I can't help but wonder about that sentence. Um, uh, Lady Winsel, his particular friend. Um, are we meant to understand that she is his mistress? That would be one way of saying such a thing. Um, It wouldn't be utterly shocking um, if Sir Walter Pohl kept a mistress. Um, But I don't know. I mean, it's way too slight to go there. I mean, that's a big can of worms to open up out of that one phrase. But um, suffice to say, Tom, I agree with you in finding it a little bit unusual, uh, certainly. Um, The only sort of excuse for it would be, again, if he were a friend of the family, uh, you know, if it's not only, uh, Lady Winsell uh, but her husband as well, uh, that he was close with, um, or brother or whatever, um, but, uh, yeah, Nancy thinks that if she is his mistress, he'd be a little weird talking up his wife to her, (sighs) you know, maybe, but I don't know, I mean, it's, it's possible, depends on the kind of arrangement they have I mean it's 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 you can sometimes see that kind of thing um, unbalance I don't think I mean I, 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 do, I there's very little other evidence that I can remember anyway um, but I don't um, I, I don't myself I don't subscribe to the to the to the to the mistress thing um, but I know yeah, do have to uh, Tom is right to note that that's an interesting sort of moment. Uh, <laughs> Kristen makes a wonderful point. Kristen Thompson says, He couldn't afford a mistress. True. That is a very telling point. Especially Lady Winsall. That sounds like an expensive mistress to me, i got to tell you. So, yeah, no, you're right. Uh, rich young men about town um, uh, might have mistresses. But, uh, you, you know, it's a fair point. I mean, he's he's got a He's got a, you know, he's a he's a public figure, but um, but it's probably going to take more than uh, than than celebrity and eloquence uh, to uh, to to secure yourself a mistress of that kind, Kristen. I think that that's a that's an excellent counter argument in my mind. Um, okay, so but what else do we learn about English magic here? Notice, of course, as a couple of you certainly were pointing out when we were. Um, when we were, when I was reading through it, um, that there's some foreshadowing here, right? Um, It is ridiculous to call such a half-hearted affair a ball. We have scarcely had three hours dancing. And she marveled, too, at the frailty of the other dancers. Poor things. I pity them. What do you make of that statement? Nobody commented on that particular point. What do you make of that? Again, of course, I said foreshadowing um the irony you know which will soon become apparent of poor lady Pole complaining about having merely three hours of dancing is kind of is 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 kind of horrible, right um as we know she is going to be doomed through the enchantment that has been laid upon her to be dancing at balls all night every night so she is soon going to be just absolutely worn to a thread by all the dancing that she is compelled to do so the complaint in retrospect uh becomes uh, becomes a really a really uh bitter one um yeah so nobody else has her energy as nancy says nobody can keep up with her agreed um yes yes um, look at her attitude, though. Yeah, Nick Morazzo says she seems to have forgotten that she was a frail thing herself. Um, yes, yes. I would go even further there. Um, she ridicules the ball, right? Calls the whole thing half-hearted. Um, just like going going around the square only five times it would be half-hearted as well, right? Um, poor things, I pity them. Notice how she's already talking about the people as them, right? I mean, there's a distinction between her and them. Um, Rachel. that's what I was just thinking of, too. Rickle says, uh, she sounds, and Rickle, I think I'm getting your name wrong again. Um, feel free to correct me again on how to pronounce your name. Uh, and someday I will, in fact, remember. Uh, she sounds almost haughty like the gentleman with a thistle down hair. He says, absolutely. Um, she is looking down, that, that is that speech of hers. Um, what a, ha- s- such a half hearted affair. We've had scarcely three hours dancing. Poor things. I pity them. Um, that sounds. Almost just like how the gentleman with the thistledown hair would speak except he wouldn't pity them right um, he would uh, uh, he would scorn them um, but nevertheless that that distinction that she's we see this beginning of her looking down at you know these other mortals as lesser creatures than herself there's like this hint of a fairy perspective uh, in her outlook at that point um Okay, ritual. Got it. Rich. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah. Good. Next, she is placing herself above them. That's exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so, uh, and you know, Kristen, I think that's a fine point. Kristen says, "I wonder if she's been so sickly most of her life, how much experience she has had of dancing." Um, yeah, I mean, it does make it the more striking, and it's even possible, of course, that that itself could be taken to explain it. Right? That is, she would pity those. Who seem weak and frail, just out of compassion for the memory of her own frailty. But, but again, I think in the context, I think it's probably uh, uh, it's probably more than that. Um, and of course, you remember my reference there in the subtitle. Remember how the the uh, uh, the gentlemen of the learned society of York magicians were afraid they were going to be abducted by fairies, and uh, the uh, narrator, somewhat somewhat uh, tartly, pointed out that uh, a fairy would probably could probably find someone more captivating to to kidnap uh, than a learned gentleman of the York society. Um, but of course, what we see is this is the other ironic element. This is the other bitterly ironic element of all of this praise heaped upon Lady Pole, right? How Lady Pole is the desire of the whole town and she is... Um, uh, and she, you know, and everybody thinks that Sir Walter is just the luckiest person in the world. And it's even if we didn't know that she had already been targeted by a fairy, that would be danger signs, right? Yeah, maybe maybe someone's going to snap her right up, right? Maybe, in fact, um, she is uh, on her way out. And that's, of course, exactly what we see. Of course, the other person who gets drawn in, right, who gets enchanted, who gets swept away in a slightly different way, but with very similar results, into fairy, is Stephen Black, of course. Let's look at Stephen Black. This is our introduction to Stephen Black. Of course, in many households there is a servant who, by virtue of his exceptional intelligence and abilities, is given authority beyond what is customary. But in Stephen's case, it was all the more extraordinary, since Stephen was a Negro. I say extraordinary, for it is not generally the, for is it not generally the case that a Negro servant is the least regarded person in a household, no matter how hard working he or she may be, no matter how clever? Yet somehow Stephen Black had found a way to thwart this universal principle. He had, it is true, certain natural advantages: a handsome face and a tall, well made figure. It certainly did him no harm that his master was a politician, who was pleased to advertise his liberal principles to the world by entrusting the management of his house and business to a black servant. The other servants were a little surprised to find they were under a black man, a sort of person that many of them had never seen before. Some were inclined to be indignant at first, and told each other that if he dared to give them an order they would return him a very rude answer. But whatever their intentions, they discovered that when they were actually in Stephen's presence, they did nothing of the sort. His grave looks, air of authority, and reasonable instructions made it very natural to do whatever he told them. Okay. Let me back up a little bit and give a little bit of cultural context here. Um, There are... A few important things that we need to understand in order to have the proper context for the Stephen Black questions, and here in in particular, I want to talk about uh, the status of the slave trade, and in particular, the issue of slaves in England at this particular time. Um, Two things in particular that I would point out: Um, one, there were very few Negroes. This was that and. That This was the common word uh, in usage at the time that is, is exactly historically accurate to use that word. There were very few Negroes in England. Um, they were not unknown, but they were very few, and you can see that, you know, many of them had never even seen a black man before, um, as it is emphasized. So the actual holding of black slaves in England, very unusual. and. Um, And so you, you just would not see very many of them. But that does not mean that slavery is not an issue in England, as it's a very different kind of issue than it was in America. But it is still an issue. England is one of the centers of the slave trade. And very much of the wealth of England throughout the 18th century was derived from the slave trade. They didn't ship the slaves to England. They shipped them to America and sold them in America. But the people... Back home, who were pocketing the money from all the all the money that was made, and it was a great deal of money that was made by first sending the ships down to Africa, uh, capturing, kidnapping uh, the Africans, um, piling them into boats, shipping them over to America, selling them over in America, and then bringing the cash back. Um, that was a that was a a, a huge earner for a lot. Of, it was a pretty significant chunk of the British economy. A lot of the trade that was going on in the West Indies, um, and those were Eng- major English holdings over there too. This, you know, you might think, well, this is post-American Revolution, right? So America is no longer an English holding at this point. No, but the Caribbean islands still are, um, and those were uh, those were major centers uh, of the slave trade. However, an important thing to keep in mind is that. Uh, You remember the date? The date, I think, is really important here. Um, The date is 1807, I think, at this particular moment. Um, And that's a very important date, because in 1810, 1810 is the year in which the slave trade in England was abolished. Slavery wasn't abolished. That didn't happen until, I think, the 1840s. but 1810 is the date at which the slave trade was abolished. No more English vessels were permitted by law to go down to Africa, seize Africans, and haul them over to the West Indies and to the Americas to sell them into slavery. That became illegal in 1810, um, was de- declared illegal by Parliament um, under primarily the, uh, the the agitation of the great and famous William Wilberforce. Um, Was the Slave Trade Act was 1807? Tell me I'm wrong about that. Um, Was it really, Michael? Hmm. There was... Yeah, okay, 33, thank you, Timothy. Slavery was outlawed in England, right? You could no longer hold slaves. If you had slaves, still. Um, Anyway, I... I, have actually spent a a good deal of time with the literature of slavery in this area. It's not my normal field, um, but it's sort of part of my own uh, part of my own uh, checkered past. When I was a graduate student, Uh, I worked as a graduate assistant uh, for one of my professors, whose name was James Basker, who's a great 18th century uh, guy. And he was working at the time on this ponderous tome, which I have, which is called Amazing Grace. It's an anthology of poems about slavery dating between 1660 and 1810. Uh, It was the first anthology of its kind. And this, this enormous book, just entirely full of poems, um, I spent like two and a half years of my life dredging through archives and reading through. I skimmed through the entire run of the Gentleman's Magazine and uh, uh, newspapers and everything else I could find, uh, looking for any scraps of verse related to slaves and slavery. Um, we, we we even found some some you know like uh, advertisements for uh, for runaway slaves which were composed in verse, It was really interesting. Um, but anyway um the 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 so the slave trade is right it is it, we are at the moment when the slave trade is being abolished. it's never talked about right we never we never get the uh the uh, the 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 slave trade act um discussed in the content in the the content of the book but it's inter- but the slave trade itself does come up of course with stephen black um so it, it's one of the kind of submerged cultural factors here is that this story the story, so we have to remember that the story about Stephen Black is happening right at that time of the changing over of the of the English sort of culture and the English uh, 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 economy from being one that's based on the slave trade to one that has abolished the slave trade um, so um, anyway, so that's, uh that that's again, just an important factor too. So first, don't forget that against that you know black slaves very unusual within England itself. But the slave trade was a major factor, and but the major factor that it was, um, abolitionism was was a very it was not a fringe movement uh, in England. It was a, a very widespread movement. Um, it was a hot topic. And there were a lot of... So that, that that's, again, that's sort of glancingly alluded to uh, when talking about the liberal principles of Sir Walter Pohl, right? He is... Again, it doesn't spell it out. He is clearly a... Uh, a, a in Parliament, he is plainly a pro-abolitionist um, uh, uh, supporter, obviously. Anybody who is going to make his Negro servant, the head of his household, and, you know, sort of uh, pleased to advertise his liberal principles. The liberal pr- principles in question are obviously abolitionist principles, um, and he's obviously on the abolitionist side, though, again, we don't get that discussed explicitly. Um, so, uh, yeah, Now, it's true, Chris Swank has an important qualification. All the things that I'm describing are things that happened in our world, historically, but, we, of course, we have to remember that this is not our historical England that's true um though the one thing that i would say and you know tell me if you think that this is not right or if if uh, if i'm 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 unjustified in making this assumption um but the way that i've been reading this book is that unless it was specified otherwise i'm assuming that history is the same because there are comparatively few deviations there are some um I mean, you know, there's, uh, you know, some larger and some smaller, but um, most things, uh, that is, I mean, obviously, like, the whole history of the Raven King, for instance, and the division of Northern and Southern England, so we get some huge historical differences, right? And yet... Despite even that enormous historical difference, we still get the March of English Monarchs, right? Unchanged. Um, they, 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 of course, like the medieval kings, um, like King Stephen, who gets, who has, was referred to by name earlier on in conjunction with one of the stories of the Orient magicians. Um, he, he was still king, and king from the same day. He, he was king of southern England, right? Not of northern England, where the Raven King was, but, um, but still... We get uh, uh, we get that, and Chris. No, we never do hear of Wilberforce. His name is never mentioned in the book. Um, like I said, it's. It, t- I think that Clark is really gentle about this. It's plain that the question of of of, of the question of race, the status of Stephen Black, um, you know, again, not just as a black man. That it's, it's not merely that he is someone of a different race. Right. It's ex- there's explicitly a slavery issue here, um, and especially in the way, as we will see as we move through the book, the way that his history, his personal history, um, as someone who was in the slave trade. Right. He was born, we will learn, on a slave ship in the Atlantic. Um, so that's made an issue um, uh, throughout the book. Um so i i i find it really interesting that she she's gone there right at this particular moment in england and yet she has not um she has not uh talked about it right she she's just she the word abo- i don't think the word abolition occurs once throughout the entire book i don't remember the word abolition ever being uttered in the book um and yet um uh and yet, there's Stephen, right? And this question is still is still very much there and very much open. And again, it's if you can think of other examples, because I'm I'm totally ready to be corrected on this. But again, when I read this, I you know she goes into so many details and includes so much history, which is accurate, um, or I should say accurate. Such such a such, a, such a, a weighted word, isn't it? I should say. Uh, which aligns so closely with the history that we know about of our world, um, that I assume it's identical, again, unless I'm informed otherwise. Um, Yeah. Um, Michael Chuskowski asks, uh, could Clark be trying to mimic Austin in this? Perhaps. I mean, I wouldn't mimic I think is too strong I mean it's true Austen doesn't talk about it either um you may remember there's one um one of Jane Austen's books in which slavery does come up very indirectly and that is Mansfield Park um because the 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 sort of the main families holdings their money comes from their holdings in the West Indies and they're having some serious financial problems with their holdings in the West Indies uh, and the whole issue of, um, of slavery and and you know abolition and uh, that like you've, he's got to go over there to see because it sounds like they're having problems with their with their slaves that's at least one uh, pretty um, uh, at least I find that. Reading pretty compelling um, of those passages in uh, Mansfield Park. But you're right, Michael, that Austen skirts widely uh, around that. And yes, yes, Nancy, Fanny has a strong opinion, but we're not told what it is. Yeah. Fanny is clearly an abolitionist. I say clearly. I think she's pretty clearly an abolitionist. Um, And I say that with the more confidence in that there is a uh, an enormously strong in England in this time, there is an enormously strong correlation between uh, uh, devout Christian principles and abolitionism. Abolition was a dominantly Christian movement, evangelical movement, primarily uh, in England at this time. Um, the more outspoken you are as a Christian, the more likely you are to be outspoken as an abolitionist. That's that was uh, that was very much a thing in this period. Um, in, uh, in, in English history. So, yeah, um, I think that that's, uh, so, yeah, Fanny, Fanny Price, totally an abolitionist, and yet, as you say, Austin doesn't actually mention it, doesn't actually go there. Um, yeah, yeah, um, okay, anyway. Sorry, I'm now, I'm now getting a little bit distracted here. Um, but again, I, but I do think it is. I do think it is interesting. And again, I I, I cannot I cannot consider those these dates a coincidence. Um, we are right here in the middle of this time, and you know, I uh, I mean, of course, you can uh, see my cunning usage of the word emancipation in the title of this, which, of course, I I mean, of course, quite literally as I've put it. Um, but, of course, also fully intend the, uh, the, the repercussions with connection to slavery. Because, of course, Stephen Black, um, Stephen Black is the one place where this theme does break through the surface. Again, we have one of the major social questions of the time. The abolitionist movement and the war with the French are the two big things happening in England. Okay, the madness of the king, maybe, but people are kind of used to that by now. Uh, so, but, but anyway, um, it's one of the major things happening in England right now, and it's not really mentioned. But Stephen Black is kind of the channel uh, for that. And isn't it interesting that at this particular moment, what we get happening in this story, at the same time that silently in the background, uh, England is you know being rocked with abolitionist, um, uh, you know, sort of conflict and, and uh, debate. The gentleman with the thistledown hair is taking a particular and very generous interest in Stephen Black. Um, now, you'll remember what uh, right after this passage that uh, I had just read about the air the, the of authority that Stephen Black has. Remember the rumor that begins to be circulated by the other ser- servants? Um, they begin to circulate the rumor that Stephen Black is royalty in Africa, right, that he was an, an African prince. Who was taken away from his land, and uh, and so it's the the, the natural air of authority that he has because he is a king in his own land, or you know the heir to a king in his own land, um, that gives him this you know this in sort of intangible air of authority that people obey automatically. Um, that of course was a uh, um, that was a a popular sort of idea it goes way back. Uh to the middle ages, that is that there's just something fundamentally different um about kings uh you may uh, uh, uh Shakespeare fans may remember that that's the that's the line that Falstaff uses when he's trying to explain to prince Howe why he didn't why he ran away uh in a in in such a shameful and cowardly fashion when howe ambushed him is that instinctively he just knew uh that the person before him was royalty and deserving of, of his respect, even though he didn't know who it was. So uh, his, his noble nature led him to flee. That is the same idea, that that, that concept, you know, that Falstaff is, you know, that Shakespeare is joking about with Falstaff uh, in, in Henry the Fourth is, um, is the same idea that the servants are sort of evoking here with the natural air of authority that Stephen has. So Stephen, he... So Lady Pole and Stephen have several things in common, right? They're both gorgeous. They're both smart. They both have this there's something about there's something about them, right? There's something attractive about them. Um Krista, I was being sarcastic about false Falstaff was claiming to be noble. Of course I'm not calling Falstaff noble. Um but, uh, and they're also, Michael, as you point out, minorities lacking power. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, a, a, the, 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 the woman, the young woman, and the Negro servant are both, uh, uh, both of them in socially marginalized positions in that way. And here is the gentleman with the thistledown hair. Right? And his interest in them seems to be disinterested. It's not possessive anyway, right? Not exactly possessive. That is to say, he does not marginalize them in the same way that their society would marginalize them, right? Um, it's, um... I mean, that's an interesting thing by itself. And it's something I want to consider, especially with Stephen Black. Um, we get we are much more privy to the dynamics here with Stephen than we are with Lady Pole, because um, who's have I forgotten it? Do we ever learn her Christian name? Lady Pole's first name? Miss Wintertown's, as was first name? Do we ever know? Emma? Is it Emma? I missed it. Um, anyway, it's very rarely uttered. Um, okay. Emma. Does Arabella say it at some point? She must. Um, yeah, I couldn't remember, but anyway, um, but so he does. He does claim her, and he does have a have a right over. He's been he's been given a, a right over her. Um, so you could say that there's kind of a parallel there, like right? just as she's being married off to Sir Walter Pole, um, and he's getting her money out of it, um, and she's being sort of transferred. Uh, her, you know, the ownership of her is being transferred over from her mother uh, to her husband. You can say that there's a parallel with what happens with, a man with the man with the gentleman with the thistle down hair, right? That um, uh, Mr. Norrell, with no right or authority over her at all, um, is giving her uh, to the fairy, right? And that he is claiming he doesn't give her a ring; he takes a finger, right? It's similar, almost the same, um, but. But I would argue that those two things are different. Yes, he has a claim on her. Yes, he does take her. Um, you know, he does take her to his into. You know, it's just, she does leave her her. You know, her her home and come into his house and into Lost Hope, right? But I think it's different. And Carita, that's exactly what I was thinking too. That he he values them for certain reasons. Uh, he doesn't value them as people. You're right, Karita. He's not. He's not uh, sort of respecting them for who they are. Um, but. But he does value them. And you, I get the impression anyway that he does value them rather differently. He certainly believes that he values them differently and more aptly, more appropriately than other people do. Um, here's Stephen Black speaking to the gentleman later on. Aloud, he, so he's been invited to, to come to the ball. Right, after he, uh, after he, 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 uh, dresses and shaves the gentleman, right? Aloud, he said, I'm very sensible of the honor you do me, sir, but only consider. Your other guests will come to your house expecting to meet ladies and gentlemen of their own rank. When they discover that they are consorting with a servant, I am sure they will feel the insult very keenly. I thank you for your kindness, but I should not wish to embarrass you or offend your friends. Of course, you notice what Stephen doesn't say, right? Um, they will be offended. By consorting with a servant, right? Yes. Of course, he's speaking very gently of the fact that he's not only a servant, but a negro servant, right? That's obviously, I I think, pretty clearly in Stephen's mind here. This seemed to anguish the gentleman with the thistledown hair even more. What nobility of feeling, he cried, to sacrifice your own pleasure to preserve the comfort of others. Well, it is a thing, I confess, that would never occur to me. "'and it only increases my determination to make you my friend "'and do everything in my power to aid you. "'But you do not quite understand. "'These guests of mine, on whose account you are so scrupulous, "'they are my vassals and subjects. "'There is not one of them who would dare to criticize me "'or anyone I choose to call my friend. "'And if they did, why, we could always kill them. "'But really,' he added, "'as if he were suddenly growing bored of this conversation, "'there is very little use debating the point, "'since you are already here.'" Question: Is fairy the land of fairy, the realm of fairy? Um, how does it compare socially? Are we to understand again? Again, it, is it is it more socially enlightened? Right, one could easily make that argument. Right, come to fairy where Negro servants are welcomed as equals by all. Right, no one's even going to bat on it. Here's Stephen assuming prejudice. Right, they're going to take one look at me and they're going to be offended. Right? That's the assumption that he brings to it, from long experience. And the gentleman dismisses it. Right? So, no problems. Right? Clearly, the court of the gentleman with the thistledown hair must be a more socially enlightened place than England. And Lady Pole will get her true appreciation there as well. Right? Um... Yeah, well, John Maline points out it's a uh, uh, you know the question of enlightened music. Like, well, it is an absolute tyranny, right? Well, yes, okay. So, in as much as we wouldn't necessarily consider that politically enlightened, it's not. But socially, right? I mean, okay, he is professedly an absolute monarch, and arguably with the whole "we could always kill them" line, a tyrant. But a tyrant with enlightened social principles, right? Egalitarian social principles. Um, I mean, he does not. He has never seemed the least bit phased about the fact that 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 Stephen Black's skin is black. everybody else obviously thinks this is quite a big deal. But he doesn't, right? He does notice. It's not that he doesn't notice. He notices, right? Do you remember him noticing? When does he notice? When does the gentleman with the thistledown hair notice um, that, uh, and I'm I'm very proud of my own lack of stuttering this evening so far, um, when does he notice Stephen Black's blackness? Yes, Philip, in the mirror. In the mirror, what does he say about it? Yeah, Carita. Um, he focuses on the attractive contrast, right? He is extremely pale with his thistledown hair, uh, and Stephen Black is not, right? So you've got the... the the, the, the two versions of masculine beauty, right, the pale one and the dark one, and he's like, ooh, what an attractive matched set we are, right? He seems to find Stephen's looks as well as his uh, character, right, novel, in fact. Um... Yeah, uh, Kay says, It's free from societal rules, but its single rule, that is fairy here, uh, is the gentleman's whim, capricious, arbitrary, and terrifying. Uh, And she quotes, When he was good, he was very, very good. And when he was bad, he was horrid. Um, Yes, uh, to put this a different way, the gentleman with the thistledown hair is clearly not an abolitionist, right? This is not someone who is acting out of a sense of compassion uh, for the abrogated rights of the Negroes, who seeks to see justice done to Stephen. Certainly not how we are introduced to him here. Um, uh, Now, it's true, as Noam Weiss says, uh, people in Ferry are judged by a criteria different from our own. That does certainly seem to be the case. And yet, um... uh, what the criteria are is less obvious. a couple of people um uh John Maline, for instance, was just saying that uh uh perhaps you know the, the Stevens skin color uh to the gentleman seems to be something like the color of a pet right it's the argument of the abolitionists was these are human beings like us, and they we cannot treat them this way. Um, that's the abolitionist argument. Um, and uh, uh, and again, in particular, the Christian abolitionist argument, which was the dominant one at the time, was saying these are human souls every bit as valuable to God as our human souls, right? So we should not treat them as we would not want to be treated. That is not the outlook of the man with the thistle, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, right? Um, he is Not looking at Stephen, and emphatically not looking at Stephen and saying, you are just as good as I am, right? Why should I treat you as an inferior? Of course he's an inferior. Everyone is an inferior to him, right? Um, Rather, it seems that since everyone is so very much inferior to himself, he doesn't appreciate... The, a, a distinction. If anything, he's novel. Janice, I think that's a great way to say it. Janice Hopper points out that he's collecting interesting specimens for his amusement. Yes, he does have a collection. He's added Lady Pole to his collection. He's now adding Stephen Black um, to uh, to his collection. That does seem to be very much uh, the uh, uh, the attitude there. Um, one last point here, and of course we'll come back and follow the career of Stephen Black as we move through the book, but one last Stephen Black passage for this evening. This is when Stephen, out in the street, accidentally runs into a white man. Right, The stout gentleman turned and saw Stephen. Instantly, he was all alarm. He saw a black face close to his own face, and black hands near his pockets, and valuables. He paid no attention to Stephen's clothes and respectable air, but immediately concluding that he was about to be robbed or knocked down, he raised his umbrella to strike a blow in his own defense. It was the moment Stephen had dreaded all his life. He he supposed that constables would be called, and he would be dragged before the magistrates, and it was probable that even the patronage and friendship of Sir Walter Pole would not save him. Would an English jury be able to conceive of a black man who did not steal and lie? A black man who was a respectable person? It did not seem very likely. Yet now that his fate had come upon him, Stephen found he did not care very much about it, and he watched events unfold as if he were watching a play through thick glass or a scene at the bottom of a pond. The stout gentleman opened his eyes wide in fright, anger and indignation. He opened his mouth wide to begin accusing Stephen, but in that moment he began to change. His body became the trunk of a tree. He suddenly sprouted arms in all directions, and all the arms became branches. His face became a bowl, and he shot up 20 feet. Where his hat and umbrella had been, there was a thick crown of ivy. An oak tree in Piccadilly, thought Stephen, not much interested. That is unusual. What do you notice here? Here's Stephen Black. In this moment where he is, he seems about to be inescapably victimized by the injustice of English society, right? He has been fearing this moment his entire life. If ever anybody even mistakenly, even unwarrantedly suspected him of a crime, he would probably be convicted of it because what English jury is going to acquit him, right? Um, so the 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 weight of the prejudice of his own society is about to come down on him, but he's rescued, right? Rescued by the gentleman with the thistle down hair. Rescued by um, rescued by 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 fairy, right? The intervention of fairy. Notice what happens, right? The man is punished, perhaps. Doesn't this sound, I don't know, maybe it's just me, doesn't this sound rather Ovidian, this particular moment, right? Just at the moment he is about to do something outrageous, just like one of those, uh, you know, Greco-Romans who are about to perform some outrage to the gods, Um, he is transformed, into a tree, right? Even the description is kind of Ovidian. Um, in uh, his, uh, you know, his body becoming the trunk of a tree, his uh, arms sprouting out, uh, his face becoming a bowl, his hat and umbrella becoming a thick crown of ivy. Um, he turns into a tree, and the outrage that he was about to perform is not only not only the outrage stopped, but the would-be doer, the person who had intended the outrage. Uh, is uh, is punished for his intentions. So, social justice, right? Social activism on the part of the gentleman with the thistledown hair, on the part of fairy? Does it suggest that the world of fairy, which Stephen half-lives in, and you know, again, we don't have the same terms. We know the terms of the deal between Mister Norrell and the gentleman, right? About Lady Pole, um, that the gentleman gets half her life. Um, uh, the the deal, the way that he deceives Mister Norrell, right, is uh, it's just like if you um, uh, if you offer to to you know split. Like you know you're going to like split a pizza with somebody right, and you assume that you 're going to cut it in half, and each of you is going to have half a pizza, right, and you agree they 're going to have half, and they say I want the bottom half right um, that, that would be an unusual right and that but that's essentially what the gentleman has done right i 'll take half her life um meaning i'll t- every night right um half twelve out of every twenty four hours she will be in my house um we're not told explicitly that those same kinds of terms uh, affect Stephen, but it seems something like that, right? He is half in fairy. Um, he walks half in fan. Here is fairy. He's in Piccadilly, and yet he's also walking in fairy. Um, fairy is intruding upon his regular daily world. Um, yeah, and uh, Kristen points out not just punished, but transformed. Um... Yeah, Janice it's a wonderful question. She says, I always wonder what happened to that man in the real world, right? Um an excellent question. Does Stephen just disappear? Is he dead? In fact it's conceivable that he I who knows? We never really know, right? Um Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. Philip Lloyd says the fairy deal is kind of like a store saying that it's open for 24 hours, just not in a row, right? Yeah, exactly. Allow you to make an assumption and then capitalize upon that uh, assumption. Um, uh, Kimber points out that his his mind was half-wiped at the end of the scene. Um, Stephen doesn't even really remember the event. Yes, yes. Uh, Stephen's own perspective um, is really interesting, right? We have his own half-life in fairy is plainly affecting uh, his, but not just because he's awfully tired, right? That's part of the problem. Instead of resting, he is being tormented by dancing all night, every night. Lady Pole is in the same position. But the one half of his life is, is becoming increasingly out of touch with the other half of his life. He does not really seem to remember. Um, and uh, uh, K. Ben Everham points out Um, how much the description of his looking, you know, watching a play through thick glass or a scene at the bottom of a pond, how much that sounds like the experience of a person who's depressed, just sort of the the sort of detachment from it, the lack of interest that he feels even in something that's quite, um, uh, remarkable in several ways, right? Um, yeah, but he's just detached from it, right? He's not, um, uh, ceases even to be, uh, even to be interested. Um, so again, what is, does this tell us something about the character of Fairy? Um, I think it shows us that he's protecting his own. He's claimed Stephen, right? Stephen, he's, well, okay, claimed. That's such a strong word, especially in regards. Uh, you know, especially in connection with a Negro servant. So, um, let's not say claimed. Let's say chosen, right? He's chosen Stephen. Um, uh, he's adopted Stephen. Um, but, uh, yeah, Tim Warman points out this is also the beginning of fairy intruding in Stephen's English life. Tim, that's exactly the thing which makes this if if it were merely Stephen is rescued by Ferry, right, it might make Ferry look like the cavalry, right? Whew, it's a good thing the gentleman has his back, right? He was he was he could have been railroaded into into execution there, right? I mean if he were convicted of, of, of attempted theft and murder, right? Quite possible, in which case he'd have been hanged. So okay. Um, here's his life has been saved, and certainly is at the very least his reputation has been saved by the gentleman. Hooray! Right, good for fairy. Um, that forward-thinking, emancipated social view of the world. That, fa- but not exactly. It's just favoritism, right? Almost a kind of nepotism, it seems rather. Um, and the fact, Tim, as you say, that we see fairy intruding. The intrusiveness of fairy in Stephen's English life. The way that Piccadilly is being transformed, um, and his life seems to be more and more taken from him. <laughs> John Malin says, "What could be worse than execution?" Right? Exactly. Uh, 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 a very interesting question, as our narrator would say. Uh, but yes, exactly, Philip. It is not. Uh, it is not a selfless act by fairy. Um, no, no, not at all. And that... Uh, so it, it's one of the things that I find so fascinating when looking at this. That tension between the English society, which is unashamedly prejudiced, um, which, in you know, his relationship, Stephen Black's relationship with the English society, is premised upon slavery. His own family, born on a slave ship. Right? Um, and... Uh, um uh, by the way in case you're wondering why the title of the that anthology that I was talking about is Amazing Grace Amazing Grace uh was written by John Newton um who was a slave trader um before he converted uh and, and became an evangelical uh, uh preacher uh he was uh, he was the captain of a slave ship and so in in a lot of his uh uh, his his hymns, for which he was very famous, um, there's a lot of slavery imagery uh, in many of his songs, um, and he often speaks of himself that way. If you think, if you know the lyrics of, of course, the very famous song "Amazing Grace," um, you will uh, uh, you will recognize some of the language. Anyway, um, he is in the middle of that again. England is unashamed, you know, is, is sort of unashamedly oriented in that way. So what about fairy, right? It's not, we don't get a really simplistic black and white affair, right? Instead, it's much more complicated um, than that there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more tension than that. Um, And I, anyway, find that really interesting. Uh, A few more points on fairy. I'm going to go a little quicker, I promise. I'm going to go a little quicker on these next couple. Um, These are the uh, the 24 gold uh, guineas, which show up. Uh, In uh, Mrs. Brandy's shop, a heap of shining guineas was lying there. Mrs. Brandy picked up one of the coins and examined it. It was as if she held a ball of soft yellow light with a coin at the bottom of it. The light was odd. It made Mrs. Brandy, John, and Toby look quite unlike themselves. Mrs. Brandy appeared proud and haughty. John looked sly and deceitful, and Toby wore an expression of great ferocity. Needless to say, all of these were quite foreign to their characters. But stranger still was the transformation that the light worked upon the dozens of small mahogany drawers that formed one wall of the shop. Upon other evenings, the gilt lettering upon the drawers proclaimed the contents to be such as mace, blades, mustard, unhusked, nutmegs, ground fennel, bay leaves, pepper of Jamaica, essence of ginger, caraway, peppercorns, and vinegar, and all the other stock of a fashionable and prosperous grocery business. But now the words appeared to read, MERCY. Deserved. Mercy. Undeserved. Nightmares. Good fortune. Bad fortune. Persecution by families. Ingratitude of children. Confusion. Perspicacity. And veracity. It was as well that none of them noticed this odd change. Mrs. Brandy would have been most distressed by it had she known. She would not have had the least notion what to charge for these new commodities. Um, I love that last line what is the light of the fairy gold doing? We get these two different examples, right? What it does to the faces of the people and what it does to the labels on the drawers. What does this passage show us about fairy and about its nature? Now, with the faces of the people, right? Um, I know when I was... uh when I first read it, I was tempted to think, perhaps this shows what they really are, right? And that we're supposed to take that line, that, that sentence as, you know, the needless to say sentence, we're supposed to take that as sarcasm, right? Um, needless to say, oh, oh, all of these are quite foreign to their characters, right? Um, but I don't think so. I mean, John, you're right, we don't really know them well enough to conclude absolutely certain, certainly. But it doesn't seem at all likely, right? There are a few things, that we know about Mrs. Brandy, right? But the prominent, the predominant thing, the most important thing that we know about Mrs. Brandy is that she's in love with Stephen Black, um, and she is wooing Stephen Black, uh, and she seems to want to marry uh, Mr. You know, Stephen Black. It is quite difficult for me to believe that a wealthy widow um, who has set her heart on marrying a black man against, I mean, all kinds of social taboos. Uh, That would be a remarkable marriage for Mrs. Brandy to make. Impossible for me to believe that her true nature is proud and haughty under those circumstances. I I cannot... Somebody who's truly proud and haughty would not go there. Clearly wouldn't go there. So I, I, I have to think that the narrator is being sincere. In saying what is revealed, what is suggested about them, is in fact quite foreign to their characters. Um, but what about the commodities? What does the list of commodities tell us about Fairy? If we're to understand the transformation of the labels of these standard grocery items to these other labels, right? These other commodities. Um, are we to understand that this is, it's like a fairy version of this store, right? We're seeing, um, that would be one way to understand it, that the light, it's not that the light is revealing the truth of what is really there. I don't think we're supposed to correlate these and be like, okay, so nutmegs, are nightmares. Right. Okay, so nightmare and nutmeg. I, I don't think so. Um I mean we notice how we do have uh, um the correlation in the letters, right? Nutmegs and nightmares, ground fennel and good fortune. Um you know, so there's there's some there's some correlation there, but I, again I'm not I don't think he's making any point about fennel uh exactly. Um yeah, exactly John. The deeper truth thing doesn't doesn't really work for the drawers. Um Uh, So, what is it then? What exactly is happening? Again, I think what we're seeing here is it's like a fairy version of the store, right? Um, Mrs. Brandy is not proud and haughty, but a fairy who is distributing commodities in fairy, right? Um, The fairy parallel of Mrs. Brandy would be proud and haughty, Um, and her two servants would be likely to be sly and deceitful and of great ferocity, perhaps. In any case, howsoever that might be with regards to the people running the shop, uh, the commodities would seem to be things that are in um, in the power of fairies to distribute. She might distribute spices to people, a fairy would distribute nightmares, mercy, undeserved or deserved persecution by families these are things they can arrange they can make these things happen the ingratitude of children confusion veracity perspicacy they can confer both deserved and undeserved mercy they can confer both confusion and perspicacity right it's they it's not to say that everything they do is bad could be anyway right good fortune and bad fortune both of them are in are commodities that are available from fairy um. yeah, Nancy's wondering what these things do cost. Yeah, they probably have a cost, right? After all, the gentleman bargains with Mr. Norrell, right? For his magic. Um, there is, so, again, one of the implications that we get is that in fairy, these commodities are, in fact, for sale. Right? These are things you can get. These are things, A, that fairies have uh, power over, and be things that can be bought. Um, so that, I think, is, to me, that's one of the primary take-homes that I get uh, from this passage, and which really informs um, I, my view of fairy. This is the gentleman talking to Stephen at his club, and um, his description of London back in the good old days, you know, when he was in charge. "'I may as well tell you,' he said, speaking in a highly confidential manner.' that this city has not the hundredth part of its former splendor. I have been gravely disappointed since my return. Once upon a time, to look upon London was to look upon a forest of towers and pinnacles and spires. The many colored flags and banners that flew from each and every one dazzled the eye. Upon every side one saw stone carvings as delicate as finger bones, and as intricate as flowing water. There were houses ornamented with stone dragons, griffins, and lions, symbolizing the wisdom, courage, and ferocity of the occupants, while in the Gardens of those same houses might be found flesh-and-blood dragons, griffins, and lions, locked in strong cages. Their roars, which could be clearly heard in the street, terrified the faint of heart. In every church a blessed saint lay, performing miracles hourly at the behest of the populace. Each saint was confined within an ivory casket, which was secreted in a jewel-studded coffin, which in turn was displayed in a magnificent shrine of gold and silver, that shone night and day with the light of a thousand wax candles. Every day there was a splendid procession to celebrate one or other of these blessed saints, and London's fame passed from world to world. Of course, in those days, the citizens of London were wont to come to me for advice about the construction of their churches, the arrangement of their gardens, the decoration of their houses. If they were properly respectful in their petitions, I would generally give them good counsel. Oh, yes. When London owed its appearance to me, it was beautiful, noble, peerless. But now... Yes, John, it does make it sound like he was the fairy to the London magicians. Um, yes, yes, at least that's his story, right? Um, did it really happen, Nancy, is a good question, right? Now, we don't ever hear... See, again, this is one of the things that I find so fascinating about how Susanna Clark sets up this story. Is all of the wealth of things that are taken for granted, in particular about the golden Age of English magic? everybody was born and bred with the stories of the raven king and and uh, uh martin pale and and uh, uh, you know Ralph Stokesy and all those guys, right? Everybody knows the history of the golden Age of magic in England, so nobody talks about it, and nobody ever really explains it to us right It's explained a little bit in the footnotes. But even the footnotes take a very great deal for granted, um, so we don't know whether this happened or not. Whether he, how, to what extent is the fairy deluded? Um, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't know. We do see Carita, as you say, we do see him emphasizing opulence and dazzling glory. Yes, yes. John points out the to us mythical creatures in actual London right? Well, two out of three, right? Dragons, griffins, and lions, though certainly the presence of lions in England is uh, somewhat mythical. But uh, but yeah, we don't know. Um, exactly, it's, you know, John asks if he's a reliable or un- unreliable narrator. We don't know how reliable he is. We can see what he values. What does he value? What does he look for in people? What does he admire in people? Beauty, absolutely. What else? What else besides beauty? Youth, yes. Yes. What do um notice let's see. Oh yeah, the, the um the the dragons, griffins, and lions symbolize what? The wisdom, courage, and ferocity. Of the occupants, right? Um, that's interesting, right? Now you're right. Several of you, of course, are making much more cynical points, such as uh, John Kingdon's pointing out quite validly that he values deference to and flattery of himself. Yes, he absolutely does. Uh, both uh, James Pace and Philip Lord saying similarly, um, he values respect. But um, uh, oh, Kimber Nelson is asking, why are the saints in boxes? They're dead, presumably. Um, it 's the, the relics of dead saints uh, that are doing the business there um, but um <laughs> John moline is complaining that he seems to have left out the hufflepuffs uh, i agree yeah yeah um, there 's just no place uh for the hufflepuffs in. Uh, the gentleman's World, uh, yeah, yeah. So no, yeah, exactly. Uh, 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 as Philip says, you have to be dead to be sainted. Absolutely. So they're all dead. It's their it's their relics um, that are performing the miracles. Um, so that's all. That's all fine. Um, courage, wisdom, courage, and ferocity, glory, splendor opulence, as uh, as as uh, uh, Carita said. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, James Leeback says, dead seems to be another one of those little distinctions that don't matter to the gentleman. We, of course, were introduced to him um, by noting, or rather in the context of seeing his unusual and, you know, rather emancipated relationship with death. Right. Um but, uh, so yes, yes, that's certainly true. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Sarah King, it is interesting hearing him talk about saints. And of course, remember there's a footnote about this earlier on, that uh, uh, that the fairies seem to have a very high opinion of saints as they took them as particularly magical people, right? Um, they don't, uh, uh, the, n- no fairies really seem to have much truck with theology, um, but they were interested in saints. Um, as... I suppose, sort of particularly accomplished human magicians. The fact that they are, at the time, dead seems to be of little real importance. Um, Let's shift to Mr. Norrell here. Yet we must hope, said Lady Pole to Mr. Norrell, that the clergyman and his sister will soon uncover a magician of genuine ability, someone to help you, sir. "'Oh, but there is no one!' exclaimed Drawlight. "'No one at all. "'You see, in order to accomplish his extraordinary deeds, "'Mr. Norrell shut himself away for years and years reading books. "'Alas, such devotion to the interests of one con- one's country is very rare. "'I assure you, there is no one else.' "'But the clergyman and his sister must not give up the search,' "'urged her ladyship. "'I know from my own example how much labour is involved in one solitary act of magic. "'Think how desirable it would be if Mr. Norrell were, were provided with an assistant.' Desirable, yet hardly likely, said Mr. Lascelles. The Malpasses have found nothing to suggest that any such person is in existence. Two things here. Right, first, um, the broad point, which we see coming up at several points, even more forcibly, um, when the ministers and even the king are desirous that uh, Mr. Norrell should set up a school for the training of more magicians, right? and he has, to, uh, he has to find a way to scuttle that idea. Um, Mr. Norrell, the great restorer of English magic, is very actively interested that nobody else become a magician. However, um, the other thing that I would point out here, because it strikes me as really important, I think it's very easy to oversimplify Mr. Norrell's character. We talked about this a little bit last time, but I think this is a really fun example the objections, the response to Lady Pole here is given immediately by draw light and Right, We know their unscrupulous reasons for making this argument. Right, They want to maintain the monopoly. It is in their interest to maintain the monopoly on magic of Mr. Norrell because they have monopolized you know, the the sort of the inner path to Mr. Norrell, right? They profit from everything Mr. Norrell profits by. Their stock rises as Mr. Norrell's stock rises, so they are invested in that, in maintaining his monopoly, so as to in- improve the benefits of their own. What's Mr. Norrell's reasoning? I, he does, They both of them, Draw Light and LaSalle's, do seem to be speaking for Mr. Norrell here. That is, he would agree with them that it's just both undesirable and really, really quite impossible. Um, But are his reasons the same? Are we... Would it be fair to say that Mr. Norrell, Drawlight, and Lascelles are all kind of coming from the same direction, have the same fundamental reasons? I don't think so. I don't think so. And it's to me the... uh, It's to me the most conspicuous thing here. That his answer, his response to Lady Pole is given by his unscrupulous assistants. Right? And their transparent um, uh, self-interestedness is very plain. And we're like invited to lump Mr. Norrell in there. But again, I don't think that's exactly the case. So let's try to ferret this out a little bit. Um, here is a couple passages from Mr. Norrell's conversation with the gentleman with Thistledown Hair when he calls him back up again and takes him to task for what he has done with Lady Pole. Um, this is, uh, of course, the gentleman is... Uh, is "'Asking, well, you know, if you're really worried about Lady Pole.' "'Right, we could probably make some arrangement.' "'Oh, as to that,' said Mr. Norrell scornfully, "'I do not care one way or the other. "'What is the fate of one young woman "'compared to the success of English magic?' "'No, it is her husband that concerns me, "'the man for whom I did all this. "'He is brought quite low by your treachery. "'Supposing he should not recover? "'Supposing he were to resign from the government? "'I might never find another ally so willing to help me. "'I shall certainly never again have a minister so much in my debt.' "'Her husband, is it?' "'Well, then I shall raise him up to some lofty position. "'I shall make him so much greater than anything he could achieve by his own efforts. "'He shall be prime minister, or emperor of Great Britain, perhaps. "'Will that suit you?' "'No, no,' cried Mr. Norrell. "'You do not understand. "'I merely want him to be pleased with me, and to talk to the other ministers, "'and to persuade them of the great good that my magic can do the country.' "'What does he want?' What do we see about Mr. Norrell here? What motivates him, exactly? Yes, Nancy, we do see the sort of general ignorance of the fairy about English politics. Um, Again, I find Mr. Norrell tricky. Tricky because the answers to the questions seem really obvious, right? Um, he's very self serving, right? His goal is self promotion, Sharon, as you say. I, I agree with that. But in what sense, right? Laselles and, and Drawlight see advantage to themselves in this, right? Is it the same that he wants? I don't really think so, right? Um, Certainly not, I would say. Certainly not. What is he after? He is clearly wanting to promote the return of English magic. Why? Why? For the good of his country! Really? Why? That seems to be a mean to it. Is he really just concerned about England? he seems like the service of his country seems to be a means to an end, right? If he can make himself indispensable to the ministers, to the government, then he will get what he wants, which is the sort of official monopoly over English uh, magic. Remember the proposals that he brought with him to his first meeting with Sir Walter Paul, right? Uh, Was his list of regulations about English magic, right? Um, So he is wanting to promote English magic. He's wanting to regulate it. Why? Why? Yeah, uh, Kevin, good. Kevin Ulrich says, I think Mr. Norrell has a sincere misguided belief that he's working for the greater good. Yes. Yeah, I agree. He does seem to really believe that. But the greater good in what sense is really hard to define? Is he trying to benefit people? He expresses himself totally uh, uncaring about people, right? He's not trying to benefit people. Why does he want to regulate English magic so much? Is it out of a pure, disinterested desire to protect people from wicked fairies? He talks like that sometimes, or seems to suggest that, but yet he doesn't care about people. He's totally willing to sacrifice people for this, for this cause of magic, so therefore, he can hardly be understood to be promoting the cause of magic in order to help people, right? Or, I mean, maybe he's twisted himself around into that kind of a viewpoint, but it seems hard to maintain. In which case, then what is it? Again, it's about his own position? Is he simply desirous? Is he, Does he simply seek flattery to the same extent? Uh, and he, even in similar... Okay, not in similar ways, because he's not physically vain of his appearance, but... Um, Does he merely seek flattery like the gentleman with the thistledown hair does? Again, I I don't think in exactly the same way. Um, But uh, just when it's, in my mind, just when it seems like Mr. Norrell's motivations are obvious, um, they become less so, right? Philip Lord says he wants to be relevant and respected, yes, but for the sake of English magic, right? Um, Of course, he wants to identify himself with English magic, right? Um, But what does he seek to gain? The praise of others? He doesn't like people. He wants to live by himself. He would rather live by himself, For the benefit of people? No, he doesn't seem to care about people and will cheerfully sacrifice them. For the good of his country? No, that too seems a mean to an end. But what end? Exactly. Um, It's complicated. And again, I find the comparative complexity of Mr. Norrell's actual motivations to be very interestingly set off by the very transparent... Machinations of his companions right drawlight and Lascelles are both obviously unscrupulous um and uh obviously self interested and the very obviousness of that uh to me really makes it uh really really interesting um moving on here just again later in this uh uh in this conversation I'm talking about fairies. It is entirely mysterious to me declared the person in the window haughtily why you should prefer the help of this person to mine what does he know of magic nothing i can teach you to raise up mountains and crush your enemies beneath them i can make the clouds sing at your approach I can make it spring when you arrive and winter when you leave. I can, oh yes, and all you want in return is to shackle English magic to your whims. You will steal Englishmen and women away from their homes and make England a fit place only for your degenerate race. The price of your help is too high for me. Okay, Mr. Norrell. Boy, speaking the truth to power, Mr. Norrell. Look at this, the champion of the human race, right? He's emancipating English magic from fairy rule, right? No way. I will not shackle, a conspicuous word under the circumstances. I will not shackle English magic to your whims, right? To your degenerate race. Another conspicuous phrase in the larger, though silent, slavery issue. That was a degenerate is a word um, often used by the opponents of the abolitionists to say, no, 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 no. The Negroes are not like us. They are a degenerate race. Anyway, um, so we have an interesting reversal there, right? That is, the ones to whom they would be shackled, the ones to whom they would be slaves. The humans would be made slaves to the humans. It's the masters that he is calling the degenerate race here. Really, really, really interesting. Anyway, okay. Um, So, look at Mr. Norrell, right? Advocate of the human race against fairies. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is Mr. Norrell's deep, deep down... uh, Motivation, right? He wants to. He's he is the the fighting on behalf of the human race. <laughs> but Kevin Ulrich points out very rightly, Norrell is a bit of a control freak, just a bit of a control freak. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all you want in return is to shackle English magic to your whims. I won't have it instead I would shackle English magic to my wings, right? I mean, let's be honest, Mr. Norrell, that's what you're trying to do. And as soon as you see that, it becomes a little bit less quick. Again, it's another, in, in, instead of being the big reveal, right, instead of saying this now draws back the curtain, and now we finally see in this moment of courage, Mr. Norrell's true heart to defend the human race against fairies, instead of seeing that in that very moment, we see instead the same thing, right? What looks to be his motivation turns out to be more complicated than that, right? Um, He's not just against the shackling of magic. Yeah, good. James Lebeck had just said exactly that same thing in exactly the same words. Um, Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, And Kat, you're right. It is... The irony is very sharp, right? That he is... uh, complaining about this, and yet, Cat, as you say, fairy magic is the basis of Neural's restoration of English magic. This was what he was struggling over, right? When he was having that conversation with himself, when he heard about Lady Pole's death, and, uh, you know, that, that conversation with draw Light in a Cell totally could not understand, right, about how, well, you know, whether he would do this, and how much he didn't want uh, to undertake that particular spell. Um... Yeah, yeah. He, he, so he, Mr. Norrell is very much aware of that irony. That seems to be one of the things that even is motivating him uh, in rejecting the fairy here, right? He did not agree the first time to uh, form an alliance with the fairy gentleman, right? He was offered that. This guy came to him and offered to be his fairy servant, just like Martin Pale had fairy servants, just like Ralph Stokes, he had fairy servants. Um, but he had to credit the fairy uh, with most of his works. Which, in fairness, would probably have been accurate. Right? fairy wasn't asking him to credit him for anything he hadn't done. He was saying, I will teach you an enormous amount of stuff, and you just have to give me credit for that. Right? Seems like a fair bargain. What could go wrong? Um, yeah... Emily, that's a wonderful point, and it's something I want to be considering as we move forward and again continue to watch Mr. Norrell's character. Emily says, Norrell hates unpredictability, which is at the core of fairies' natures. Yes, he does not like fairies. Mr. Norrell and fairies do not get along, right? Um, And there do seem to be many reasons, and it does not seem to be simply a disinterested humanitarian thing, right? Um, Fairies treat people badly, and I am against that. I am the defender of humans it's um it's more than that it's more than that um yeah yeah more on this we'll keep uh we'll keep looking at this um continuing with mr norrell and okay well continuing with mr norrell but backtracking i'm now going to finally come back to the passages that i threatened to begin today's class with um and didn't get to and instead i'm going to end today's class with them and that is his uh confrontation uh, with, uh, with Vinculus. This is, to me, the most fascinating moment in the entire exchange. I, I love the poetry, we'll look at the poetry, but this is the moment that I found most interesting and most informative in thinking through uh, Mr. Norrell's situation and his motivations and things. "'Oh, yes,' continued this person, glaring furiously at Mr. Norrell. "'You think yourself a very fine fellow. "'Well, know this, magician. "'Your coming was foretold long ago. "'I have been expecting you these past twenty years. "'Where have you been hiding yourself?' "'Mr. Norrell sat in amazed silence, staring at his accuser with open mouth. "'It was as if this man had reached into his breast, "'plucked out his secret thought, and held it up to the light.' Ever since his arrival in the capital, Mr. Norrell had realized that he had indeed been ready long ago. He could have been doing magic for England's benefit years before. The French might have been defeated, and English magic raised to that lofty position in the nation's regard which Mr. Norrell believed it ought to occupy. He was tormented with the idea that he had betrayed English magic by his dilatoriness. Now it was as if his own conscience had taken concrete form and started to reproach him. Interesting. Is Mr. Norrell totally self interested? No. No. He sees this paragraph appears to express a genuine duty that he feels. He should have he is chiding himself for his dilatoriness, right? He shouldn't have waited so long. Um he um he does feel a higher duty. Higher than his own self-promotion. Higher than his own... He is not simply trying to build up the reputation of English magic in order to solidify his own position. Right? He is solidifying his own position, but it's not... He may want to defeat the French in order to benefit English magic. But he does not seem to be really promoting English magic just to pr- just to benefit himself. a light, yes, Lascelles, yes, but not Mister Norrell. The very guilt that he feels here, the very fact that he sees this in terms of, I have timorously and perhaps even selfishly, um, delayed. Right, I have indulged myself in my own privacy in my own studies, when I could have been working for the good of the realm, when I could have been working for the good of English magic for years. Notice how that puts his own good, his own desires, his own, you know, uh, 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 goals for himself. It subordinates it to English magic. certainly separates it, right? Pursuing those two ends are not the same thing. One is certainly not a means to the other. In fact, they may indeed be in conflict, and he may end up actually sacrificing his own interests, sacrificing his own well-being for the sake of English magic. Does that make him truly altruistic at heart? No, no, I don't believe that for a minute. And of course, again, the more we look at it, the more complicated I feel that it gets. But... um. But, of course, then the more interesting thing, where is this coming from? Vinculus, right? Um, Vinculus, the one who is associated with traditional English magic. The one who is connected, at least indirectly, with the Raven King. Well, he connects himself directly with the Raven King, as he is here to deliver a message from the Raven King. And of course, Mister Norrell doesn't believe this a bit. Every, every you know, street magician claims to be delivering messages from the Raven King. Um, but anyway, let's look at Norris's. Norris's. Oof. Let's look at Vinculus's message to Norrell from the Raven King. Um, yeah, good Nancy. Not only traditional English magic, but also totally disreputable magic. Absolutely. Um, okay. I want to go through this. Keep in mind, I don't want to talk about the times later in the book when, this is going to be, when these things are going to be fulfilled. Right? Not interested in that right now. Uh, the prophecies of Vinculus will take greater significance to themselves as we move through the book. What I want to focus on these right now, what I want to hear in these, is what we hear in them when we are reading through on page 151, right? What do we get from these? What do we learn from these prophecies as they stand, not as we see them being fulfilled later on, okay? Um, This is a message from the Raven King. Mr. Norrell is receiving it at this point in time. What is the Raven King's message for Mr. Norrell? Assuming, of course, that Vinclus is not a fraud and just making this up i reached out my hand england's rivers turned and flowed the other way i reached out my hand my enemies blood stopped in their veins i reached out my hand thought and memory flew out of my enemies heads like a flock of starlings my enemies crumpled like empty sacks i came to them out of mists and rain i came to them in dreams at midnight i came to them in a flock of ravens that filled a northern sky at dawn when they thought themselves safe I came to them in a cry that broke the silence of a winter wood." What do we see here? Well, one thing that I see here is that the, uh, the prosody of the Raven King is a little uneven. That is to say, this poem doesn't scan very well. Um, which I can't help but find a little bit disappointing myself. However, I will permit the Raven King this excuse. Um, No, Moy says it's not in Middle English. No, it's not in Middle English. Um, It's in Modern English. It sounds like a translation of a poem, not a poem, right? That is, it's obviously not a poem written in Modern English. You can tell it's not a poem written in Modern English for two reasons. One it seems to be in something like free verse, which is not a thing. Um, no, it's not, a, not an 18th century thing, certainly. It's not in heroic couplets. That's what, I mean, if it were an 18th century poem, that's what it would be in. Um, obviously. Rhyming, heroic, heroic couplets are iambic pentameter uh, with the rhyme couplet at the end. That's y- sort of ye old standard verse. Now, of course, I know we've got the romantics, right? Uh, Romantic poetry, of course, is very much a thing at this time, but they didn't talk like this either. Um, uh, So, but it does sound like something that's translated from a different language. Even the sort of the the uneven, the the, the very great unevenness of the lines, right? I reached out my hand, thought and memory flew out of my enemies' heads like a flock of starlings. That sounds like a translation, right? Um, Thought and memory. Probably that's one word uh in uh you know a, a word like uh you know something like uh the anglo saxon word mold for instance right which means mind spirit courage attitude it's a whole bunch of different kinds of things that it means um but um but it um it's hard to render in one single word in modern English, right? So I'm guessing thought and memory is probably a single word. Um, Flew out of my enemy's heads like a flock of starlings. I wonder how many total words that was in the Raven King's language. Right? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, yes, yes, and several of you are pointing out that uh, uh, thought and memory are, uh, are, are the names of Odin's ravens. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think... I'm not sure what to do with that. i rather think that's a joke. Um, uh, an inside joke. Uh, certainly. Um, but that is, I, I don't see... Well, I don't see the relevance of an overt Odin reference at this moment. again, I think it sounds to me more like an inside joke. Um, but anyway, um, what do we learn here? Again, let's assume for a second. Well, no, we don't even need to assume. Either this is a message from the Raven King, or it is an experienced con artist's fraudulent version of a message from the Raven King, and in either case it tells us something about the traditional idea of the Raven King and traditional English magic, right? In either case, we'd learn something about that from this speech. Um, what do we get? Absolute authority is one thing we get. I reached out my hand England's rivers turned and flowed the other way, right? He gestures, and the rivers turn around. Um, England's rivers, right? Would he have that same authority in a different land? I don't know. I rather doubt it. But um, but he he has that authority over the rivers, over his enemies' blood, over the thought and memory of his enemies, right? Tom Hillman points out how we get this sort of penetration, right? The The, the, the rivers of the outer world, the blood the mind uh, of his enemies. He claims authority over all of these things. Um, I came to them out of the mists and rain. I came to them in dreams at midnight. I came to them in a flock of ravens that filled the northern sky at dawn. Um, what do we get here? I, when they thought themselves safe, I came to them in a cry that broke the silence of a winter wood. What do we learn? about the Raven King here. His connection with the land, right? The flock of ravens in the northern sky. His symbol. His country. The mists and rain. Uh, he is like the cry that breaks the silence of the winter wood. He is everywhere and can burst out from anywhere. When there is mist and rain, he could step out of that. Um... When there is a silent winter wood, a sudden cry might break that silence and he will be there, right? Um, A dream which comes upon you at midnight, so is the Raven King, not only in his sort of ability to be anywhere uh, and everywhere, but in the suddenness and the inescapability of his coming, Right? you can't stop a dream coming to you. No more could you expect to stop the Raven King. Um... An interesting comparison, in my mind. Well, here's a set of comparisons. Think about the authority figures that we see. Think about Mr. Norrell. He claims authority over modern magic. Mr. Norrell, the Raven King, the gentleman with the thistledown hair. Right? You might even throw in Stephen Black and his authority and his potentially royal authority. Um, and even Sir Walter Pole as a minister and member of government and the respect that he has. Um, That would be an interesting set to kind of compare. What kind of authority do they claim? Um, How does that authority work? Um, Lots of interesting things there. Let's keep going. The rain made a door for me, and I went through it. The stones made a throne for me, and I sat upon it. Three kingdoms were given to me to be mine forever. England was given to me to be mine forever. The nameless slave wore a silver crown. The nameless slave was a king in a strange country. So what have we observed here? What have we learned about the Raven King? John, Kingdon, makes a wonderful comment. Uh, John says... The Raven King spends a lot of time thinking about his enemies. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we learned that about the Raven King. Very good. Um, In fact, you could even expand that to say he seems to think a lot about himself, right? Um, If this is a message that he is sending to Mr. Norrell, it's mostly about himself, right? He wants Mr. Norrell to recognize his authority? His supremacy? Um, Perhaps. Kimber, what a wonderful point you make. Excellent careful reading by Kimber Nelson here. Uh, Kimber says he thinks a higher power put him in his position of authority. What a wonderful thing to notice, especially in conjunction with all these highly authoritative things. Three kings were given to me to be mine forever. England was given to me. To be mine forever. Um, who gave them to him? Right, someone. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, England is giving itself to him in some sense. Right, the rain is making a door for him. The stones are making a throne for him. Um, the kingdom, England, is his forever, um, and certainly going back uh, for a second to the previous, all those, all those enemy passages, right? Um, I came to them, you know, when they thought themselves safe, I came to them in a cry that broke the silence of a winter wood. Uh, does not that kind of sound like modern England, right? Uh, and its magic-free state? Um, uh, yeah, the Raven King does seem to want to say John as John as you say John Maline, I've been away but I'm not gone right um, yeah and the name was slave of course as we'll learn later is him the Raven King but more on that later the weapons that my enemies raised uh, the and, and weapons that my enemies raised against me are venerated in hell as holy relics plans that my enemies made against me are preserved as holy texts. Blood that I shed upon ancient battlefields is scraped from the stained earth by hell's sacristans and placed in a vessel of silver and ivory. I gave magic to England, a valuable inheritance, but Englishmen have despised my gift. Magic shall be written upon the sky by the rain, but they shall not be able to read it. Magic shall be written on the faces of the stony hills, but their minds shall not be able to contain it. In winter, the barren trees shall be a black writing, but they shall not understand it. He gave magic to England. He has authority over England. He is England's king. It is his realm forever, and he gave magic to it. Magic is his. I'm talking to you, Mr. Norrell, right? Mr. I have control over English magic and I'm going to redefine English magic, right? Um, what about the hell stuff? It is rather curious, isn't it? The weapons my enemies raised against me are venerated in hell as holy relics. What do you make of this? Kind of strange, isn't it? Yeah, Kristen, he did rule a kingdom in hell, right? Well, part of hell, right? Um, but that's not what he's talking about. Um, well, yeah, John, it's an honor to have fought him, right? Um, to have been his enemy destroyed by him, presumably, since they're in hell and all of their things are accessible in hell. Um, those who are in hell and what exactly that means in this context is kind of difficult to understand given his hellish kingdom that we're told that he has. Um, but, uh, But anyway, those who stood up against him are revered in hell. But it is in hell that they're revered. Right, um, they are famous even to have attempted to fight again, even though they've attempt they've, they've presumably lost since they're now in hell um but yet even to have attempted it makes them revered in hell, right The greatest of those in hell, those who are worshipped in hell, are the people who stood up against me and I destroyed them right that's kind of how special and awesome I am, right um maybe? I mean, I think that's one way to make it understand understandable, but notice, he now turns explicitly to be talking about English magic. Right? I ordained English magic. English magic was mine. English magic is still mine. Englishmen have despised my gift. Well, we know that Mr. Norrell despises his gift. We know that Mr. Norrell despises him. Right? Um, He wants nothing to do with the Raven King and the Raven King's magic. And he, the Raven King, says magic is not going to leave England but the people will be unable to see it. That's his prophecy, right? Magic shall be written on the sky by the rain but they shall not be able to read it. Written on the faces of stony hills but they shall not or their minds shall not be able to contain it. They won't be able to understand it. And then his last words... I sit upon a black throne in the shadows, but they shall not see me. The rain shall make a door for me, and I shall pass through it. The stones shall make a throne for me, and I shall sit upon it. He's now repeating again. I sit upon a black throne in the shadows, but they shall not see me. He rules in the shadows. He will not appear. Um, okay. Um keeping you awake now tonight. Um the mixture of authority, uh the authority that the Raven King claims his his relationship with fairy and fairy magic, right? Um he's given three kingdoms, right? He's given the king the kingdom of England. Um by fairies? But he claims them entirely for himself. Where are the boundaries? Is John O'Sglass's magic fairy magic? Or is it not? It's English magic. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep looking. We'll keep looking at these things. Um, This is exactly the kind of magic that Mr. Norrell would set England free from. And yet, he claims, or wishes to have, um, not by tradition, but by law, right? Not acclaimed by the stones and the rain, but acclaimed by the government of England, right? He wants to be chief of the tribunal that will regulate magic in England, right? That will define the laws of magic. He would seek to prevent anybody else from performing any magic or even reading any books about magic, right? He wants to restore magic and yet expunge it at the same time. Um, Who's emancipating, right? Who is setting for... Is the Raven King prophesying that he will set England free from Mr. Norrell, or is Mr. Norrell going to set England free from the Raven King? Um, well, we'll carry on with Vinculus next time. I didn't get a chance to talk about Vinculus and Childermass' meeting, uh, and their very interesting discussion with Childermas' cards. Uh, I will certainly do that next time. We'll talk about Vinculus's book uh, and Childermass' cards. Um, I love the scene with the chapter with Chilton Mrs. Cards. Um, So we'll we'll definitely start with that next time, and then we'll actually talk about Jonathan Strange. Um, I uh, was pretty sure... I was prepared to talk a little bit about Jonathan Strange tonight. Uh, No one... He's <clears throat> less surprised than I that I didn't get a full chance to do that, but that's okay. We'll have plenty of time to talk about Jonathan Strange next time. So we'll f- we'll finish up with Vinculus and Childermas next time, and then we'll shift over and start focusing on Jonathan Strange and what we learn about him. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, oh, us. What am I now speaking of myself in the plural? Um, Anyway, thanks for joining me here this evening uh, for class. I look forward to uh, meeting with you guys again next week uh, for class number four. Um, don't forget, uh, if you're anywhere in the Mid-Atlantic region, come join me at MidMoot this Saturday. Uh, and don't forget about the fundraising campaign. We rely upon your support. If you if you like the Mythgard Academy, please do support us and help us to carry on surviving for another year. Um, I'll have more updates on that as we move forward, but uh, thanks very much, everybody. Good night. See you next week.